Welcome, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about how nutrition and lifestyle impacts PCOS. We are talking with Angela Grossi. She is a registered dietitian nutritionist, the founder of the PCOS Nutrition Center, where she provides evidence-based nutrition information and coaching to people with PCOS. She is the author of several books on PCOS, including the PCOS Workbook, Your Guide to Complete Physical and Emotional Health, and I'd like to say that is a great book. And she also is the author of the PCOS Nutrition Center Cookbook. In addition, she has PCOS herself, and so this topic has personal as well as professional interests. Welcome, Angela, uh, and thank you so much for being here today to talk to us about uh, all things nutrition and lifestyle as it relates to polycystic ovary uh, syndrome. Great to be here, Don. Thanks for having me. Good. Let's start by talking about uh, what is PCOS exactly and, and what causes it? That's a great question to start with. PCOS stands for polycystic ovary syndrome, and it's a very under-recognized condition that affects about 10% of reproductive age women. And it has always been viewed as a reproductive disorder. So women with this condition typically will present with irregular periods. They will have um, problems with ovulation and trouble getting pregnant. In fact, PCOS is the most common cause of ovulatory infertility. So it's always been viewed as this um, hormonal disorder, but now we know that there's reproductive uh, consequences that extend into the endocrine aspect. So it's actually uh, primarily viewed now as an endocrine disorder. And the reason for that is that we see higher rates of women who have this having insulin resistance. And it's associated with a whole bunch of other metabolic conditions. And so when you, you're talking about metabo- the metabolic impacts of polycystic ovary system. Exactly. Associated with PCOS, we're going to see higher rates of thyroid disorders, fatty liver disease. We're going to see problems with autoimmune disorders, dyslipidemia. And so what typically presents is high levels of LDL, high levels of triglycerides, and low levels of HDL cholesterol. So when somebody is concerned that they may have PCOS, these are, uh, what type of testing should they seek out? Sure. Well, the first is to understand the diagnostic criteria for PCOS. And and right now, and there's so much we don't know about PCOS, but right now it's an agreed upon criteria. And it states that a woman has PCOS if she has two of the following three. The first is if she has uh, the presence of these little immature follicles on her ovaries. So this would be through an ultrasound, usually a transvaginal ultrasound that looks at her ovaries. And part of this hormonal disorder is that women have higher levels of testosterone, these this male hormones, um, testosterone and its precursor, DHEA sulfate, which converts into testosterone. So not only do we look at the ovaries to see if they have these immature follicles, but we also look at their uh, hormone levels. So we look at testosterone. And you can do blood levels of total and free testosterone to see if levels are elevated. Typically, if levels are over 40, then that's kind of consistent for a total testosterone with PCOS. 
But we don't just go by the blood work because testosterone is not a very sensitive test. Uh, it varies a lot and doesn't pick up a lot and really just not a good test. So we also look at other signs of having high testosterone in women, which is going to be acne, um, hair loss, and excessive hair growth. So some women who have PCOS will get like a mustache or will get a beard, um, hair in the central part of her body, for example, between her breasts or in her thighs. Uh, that's probably more than a woman would normally have, and it becomes problematic. And as you would imagine, male factor type hair growth is what exactly the central part of the body. So we don't just go by a testosterone test itself, but we also look at signs on the body. So that would be the second criteria. And then the third would be if the woman has irregular cycles. So if her period is not regular or absent altogether, that is the third criteria for having PCOS. Okay. And um, do we, what do we know about what causes uh, PCOS? There is still so much to learn about PCOS. We're not exactly sure of the exact cause of it. There's a whole bunch of theories and a whole bunch of um, kind of ideas of what could cause it. For example, maybe babies being exposed to high testosterone levels in utero. How would a baby be exposed to a higher than normal levels of testosterone in utero? Sure. So let's say the mother had PCOS and her testosterone was high and she was pregnant. Because it, there's definitely a genetic link to PCOS. Mm-hmm. We're definitely seeing families that if a mother has it, um, it's a good chance that her daughter's going to have it. it. It tends to run in families with like sisters. If one sister has it, chances are the other sister's going to have it too. Mm-hmm. So there has been a gene identified. Um, but then we look at environmental impact too, you know, from pollution, environmental contamination, And then we look at the gut bacteria and does that play a a role into this whole pathophysiology of PCOS? That's fascinating. What is the the microbiome and how that might, uh, the gut microbiome is what you're talking about? Exactly. And we do have some research that correlates poor gut bacteria to higher levels of testosterone in PCOS. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. But that's not part of the diagnostic criteria. No. It's just as far as trying to understand cause and things such as that. Exactly. Where does inflammation fit in as far as inflammation we know is harmful on so many different levels, including cardio health, physical health, uh, you name it. Is inflammation a, a culprit or a cause or a result of polycystic ovarian syndrome? Definitely. I think inflammation only adds fuel to the fire. And what we see is when somebody has higher levels of inflammation, it makes that insulin resistance worse and vice versa. High insulin levels then makes the inflammation worse. So a lot of the treatment for PCOS is aimed at reducing both the inflammation and the insulin resistance. Okay. And that's a segue into now, obviously, the actual treatment, it needs to be done by, and, and preferably by a reproductive endocrinologist, but you need to see a medical professional to diagnose your own specific. But what are some of the treatment options available for women who present with polycystic ovarian syndrome? 
Well, the good news is that we do know, know a little bit more about PCOS than we have in the past uh, decade or so, and there are many more treatment approaches available. The primary treatment approach is through nutrition. So how you feed your body and what you give your body can really help to reduce that inflammation and that insulin resistance. And another thing to consider is that PCOS, because there is uh, an insulin resistance component in the majority of patients who have it, that that can turn into type 2 diabetes down the road. So it's really important to be preventative whenever possible and try to know your numbers, know your A1C, get an oral glucose tolerance test done and monitor for that and uh, make lifestyle factors like changing up your nutrition, exercise is so important, uh, sleep, stress management, all of that plays into decreasing insulin and inflammation. And then we always have other lifestyle uh, options like supplements and medications that can help with PCOS. Okay. And briefly, what are the uh, predominant medications, again, depending on the case and the patient, but what are some of the, uh, the more common medications? Sure. The most common medications used for PCOS right now is going to be metformin, which is a common diabetes medication, which helps to reduce insulin and glucose. And taking metformin can also help to regulate cycles, helping to get periods more regular. It can also bring down cholesterol. And we're also seeing that birth control pills are are often used. I, I usually am not a great fan of them because there are significant side effects of taking them. It's kind of like just a Band-Aid for PCOS because it will regulate a cycle, but it does increase insulin, increases inflammatory markers like CRP, and can increase cholesterol as well. Excellent. And you mentioned supplements. What supplements would uh, medical professionals consider for a woman with PCOS? Yeah, I'm a big fan of supplements as they provide a good option to help treating PCOS without side effects usually. So they're usually very well tolerated. Some of the most studied of supplements for PCOS include inositols like myo-inositol and dechiro-inositol. We're seeing that fish oil can play a role in helping to decrease triglycerides and help with inflammation. Um, We're also seeing that vitamin D is really important for ovulation and for egg quality and possibly helping with insulin. And then we see some herbal like berberine or the antioxidant N-acetylcysteine, also known as NAC, being a a good option to help bring down insulin. And NAC has also been shown to improve egg quality and ovulation as well. Excellent. Thank you. Let me remind everyone that this show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical, for women who have been struggling with infertility and infertility treatment and need some emotional support, and and who doesn't, let's be honest, Uh, there is an app available called Ferticolum. It was designed by reproductive psychologists, and it was designed specifically to help women address the many challenging emotional life situations that arise while struggling to conceive. You can get more information at ferticolumapp.com. Angela, all right, let's talk about nutrition and PCOS. One of the first things that most people assume 
is that if you have PCOS, you are overweight. And the assumption is that you are overweight because you eat too much or exercise too little. In this part, we're going to focus more on nutrition. Let's talk about that belief that a lot of people, including medical professionals, have that sufferers of PCOS or or women with PCOS are overweight due to eating too much. Okay. So the most frustrating and most common advice given to patients with PCOS by their healthcare providers is to lose weight. And uh, if they lose weight, then they're told that their cycles will improve, their symptoms will improve, and PCOS can go away. And that's just not true. Uh, I know that patients with PCOS are so dedicated to wanting to lose weight because here they are with having this insulin resistance, they tend to gain weight rapidly out of the blue, a significant amount of weight, almost like they just blew up overnight. The only thing I can equate it to is like having a thyroid disorder and gaining a a rapid amount of weight in a relatively short amount of time. And a lot of time that weight occurs in the midsection of the body. So some patients will even refer to it as like a spare tire around their waist, uh, an extra roll of fat around their belly button area. And patients want to get control over it. Here they are with this symptom that's been out of control, and uh, they do want to control it. And chances are, patients with PCOS have gone on diet after diet, maybe to lose a little bit of weight, but only to quickly regain it. And that's because of the uh, powerful influence of insulin. Insulin's a growth hormone. Its job in the body is to promote fat storage, which is weight gain. And when we compare women with PCOS to women without it, we do see that women with PCOS have higher levels of insulin. So they are going to struggle with their weight. It doesn't mean that it's due to eating too much because um, I work with patients all the time that are eating sometimes a low-calorie diet, training for marathons, and have still experienced this rapid weight gain. So it's more due to the influence of insulin. And sometimes when we put this pressure on our patients to lose weight, we are taking away the emphasis of lifestyle in helping to improve their condition. And and it should also mention it is possible to have PCOS and not be overweight. Although I think the majority of patients do present with uh, increased weights. Do you happen to know the percentages? I think around 70% of women with PCOS are of a heavier weight. You have an entire workbook on this subject, but what uh, what should women with PCOS be eating? Sure. So the first thing is to individualize it based on the patient's needs. So when I meet with a patient, I do a full detailed PCOS nutrition assessment. So we're discussing um, what they eat on a regular basis, the foods that they prefer, the foods that they don't prefer, and their lifestyle. If they work a very demanding job, if they're doing a lot of travel, what's the home situation? Do they have children? All those factors play into a nutrition plan for PCOS. But in general, it's important for patients to have the education about how food affects insulin levels. So what we know is that very high sugary foods or refined foods that tend not to have enough fiber or protein, they tend to enter your bloodstream very quickly. And that's going to cause a big surge in insulin. 
And that's eating those foods on a regular basis. If it becomes problematic, that can only worsen insulin resistance. So instead, I try to help patients to emphasize the low GI foods, the low glycemic index, foods that don't spike up insulin, and including plenty of fruits and vegetables that contain antioxidants. And that's going to help to fight the inflammation as well as getting in a balanced meal plan. So to balance the insulin, you want to have the protein and fat at each meal and snack to balance those insulin and glucose levels. So how does food impact insulin levels? One would assume high sugar, and you're saying non-complex carbohydrates, simple carbohydrates. What are some of those foods that would directly uh, allow insulin to spike? High glycemic foods. Right. So if you think of foods that are already almost processed, so like juice would enter your bloodstream right away. And that would cause a big surge in your insulin versus like, let's say an apple, which has that whole fibrous skin around it that your body has to break down the fiber to get the nutrients. So that gets digested a lot slower. So just in general, like foods that don't have fiber, protein, white rice, a lot of processed foods that tend to really quickly enter the bloodstream because they're already processed. And that causes a big surge in insulin levels. Higher uh, complex carbohydrates, whole grains, whole whole fruits and vegetables are okay, but eaten whole, not as a a juice or a, a liquid format. What about uh, things like uh, potatoes and uh, different types of starchy vegetables? Right. So those are carbohydrates, but they have a lot of fiber. So what I usually educate my patients about is kind of looking at the PCOS plate. Half your plate should be the vegetables, a quarter should be protein, and then a quarter should be the starchy carbs or the whole grain carbs. And then in the middle should be some good healthy fats to balance everything out. And is there a preference as to the type of fats? Um, I know right now a lot of people are talking about coconut oil. Does it matter the type of fat? Fat is going to be good at every meal. It's important to have fat at every meal, but we do see that some fats provide antioxidants like avocados, olive oil, olives, nuts, seeds, fatty fish, all these types of fats actually can help to decrease inflammation. What about dairy? Is dairy a, is, is it forbidden or is it encouraged? And, and if dairy, what type of dairy? Whole wheat, whole fat, low fat? Right. So dairy is actually kind of controversial in PCOS. We have just a very few studies that have shown that Fat-free dairy, that having two servings or more of fat-free dairy can increase insulin and testosterone levels, and that can contribute to higher testosterone and even more acne production. And that's that's skim milk, that your low-fat or skim products, your low-fat yogurts are fat-free yogurts. So it's kind of contradictory in what we have been hearing in the past, which is if you've got a weight problem, you are focusing on, you know, the skim milk products. Right. So what we're finding with these fat-free or skim products is that they remove the fat and it changes the whole hormone composition of the, of the dairy. And so women are taking it in and it's actually left with higher androgens, which then increase their androgen levels. 
Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So I really individualize it with patients. There in, you know, there are some studies that show that a couple servings, just one or two servings of full fat dairy is beneficial for fertility and it's a great source of vitamin D. So it's important to individualize it um, for the patient. Some patients just can't tolerate dairy much. It's causing more inflammation for them if they can't digest it. So if, uh, if anything, if you do have dairy, I do recommend going for just one or two servings of full fat each day. All right. So dairy is, if you can tolerate it, is fine. Aim for the full fat versus the low fat. That's fascinating. You talked about the PCOS plate being half fruits and vegetables, a quarter complex carbohydrates, and a quarter protein. Is that, is that correct? Half vegetables. Fruit would go into that quarter part with the, the carbs. All right. What type of protein? Is this a, a diet that the type of protein matters or as long as it's protein, it's protein? Right. Any kind of protein is going to be beneficial. It's almost going to act as like a buffer with those carbohydrates to keep blood sugar levels even throughout the day. Okay. So it can be chicken. It can be soy. What about vegetable-based protein? Is that preferable or, or not? Beans, legumes? I think the beans and legumes are great to include. They're um, really high in fiber. They've got a lot of antioxidants and they have protein. So I think they're fine to have. And it's really important to get a variety and also not to even look at this as like a diet. This is just a lifestyle. This is how you eat for PCOS. Yeah, I do hear that, that what you're, this is not intended to be a diet for losing weight. It is intended to be a, a healthy eating regime is, is, is what I am hearing. Right. All right. So what about, now you've mentioned you would not encourage juices, eat the fruit itself, avoid the juice. What about alcohol, a glass of wine, a beer, a mixed drink, uh, on occasion, is, uh, is that allowed? On occasion, those drinks are fine to have. In fact, uh, red wine might be the best choice of all because it's got a lot of antioxidants in it. We do see that several having several drinks a week, though, can affect fertility. So if someone does have PCOS and is trying to get pregnant, they might want to cut back on their alcohol as well as coffee intake. Well, you just got to the next uh, one of my favorite beverages coffee. Um, what is the evidence, what does the science say about coffee and uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome? We don't have any evidence per se in PCOS with coffee, but if someone is trying to get pregnant, I would just limit their coffee intake to no more than two cups a day. And that's two eight ounce cups. You know, I'm uh, because I am a tea drinker. I think in terms of a lot of times, I love the research that says green tea is is good for you. Since I love green tea and drink it, um, is there any research that would uh, that support that uh, teas, green tea, or, or other or black teas are beneficial? There is, Dawn. You'll be happy to know. <laughs> I am green, happy to know that. <laughs> green tea um, is loaded with antioxidants and has been shown to help to decrease testosterone levels in patients with PCOS. Excellent. So green tea over other tea, uh, a black tea then it sounds like. Absolutely. I think black tea has a lot of antioxidants too, but the what we know from the literature is that it's more the green tea and even spearmint tea has been shown to decrease testosterone. 
so we, we want this to be not viewed as a punitive diet. We want this to be viewed as a lifestyle change. So uh, what is an effective way to start implementing this? Or, or should you just bite the bullet and do it all at once? Well, I would definitely recommend getting some help with this because chances are if you have dieted in the past, you have a lot of myths maybe surrounding food and are very confused about what to eat. And if you search the internet, there's a lot of myths about PCOS and nutrition. So working with a registered dietitian such as myself that's experienced in PCOS would be helpful. I would also recommend my book, the PCOS Workbook, which does include nutrition as part of it to helping you get started. But I would just start with one meal. And after you get the education about how food affects insulin and knowing what even insulin is, then I would start with, say, breakfast. Make that a good balanced breakfast. Get a lot of whole grains in there. Get a good amount of protein, some fat. And once you have breakfast down, maybe work on the next meal. Excellent. Let me pause and let people know that this show is brought to you with the support of our partners. And our partners are organizations that believe in our mission of providing unbiased, accurate, uh, medically accurate information to the patient community. One such partner is Fairfax Cryobank. They are the U- a U.S.-based leading donor sperm bank and the trusted and uh, one of the largest selections of donors and donor information products available. And they have six sites across the U.S. and they can provide a large and diverse selection of donors. We also have Cooper Surgical. Cooper Surgical Fertility and Genomic Solutions are global leaders in IVF and reproductive genetics. They offer uh, an assortment of different type of tests, PGTA, PGTM, PGTSR, as well as some endometrial receptivity testing for individuals as well as for couples. And really most important, or not most important, but, but very important, at least to me, is that they provide comprehensive genetic counseling to their patients. And it is a huge part of their belief system that, that uh, genetic counseling is crucial to help people understand the impact of the genetic testing and uh, and not leave them stranded. And so we thank them. All right. In addition to food, we also know that there are other things we need to focus on that that affect not only your general health, but particularly a health with uh, the health of a woman with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Let's talk about sleep. You know, I, I always like to say sleep is, is the easiest thing to change in some ways, but it really isn't for a lot of people. I appreciate that. What does the research show about how sleep impacts women with PCOS? Sleep plays a significant role in PCOS. And we do see in patients with PCOS that they have more sleep disorders um, than perhaps other populations. So we're finding that a lot of women with PCOS, maybe they have anxiety and that's affecting their sleep. Maybe they can't fall asleep or they wake up in the middle of the night and have trouble going back to sleep or wake up really early. And then we have some women that have sleep apnea. In fact, sleep apnea is twice as common in PCOS. COS patients. And there is a link with high testosterone levels that high testosterone levels affect the sleep receptors in the brain. And that can contribute to apnea. And when you have sleep apnea, it makes insulin resistance worse. 
And certainly if you're struggling with sleep, um, it can make insulin worse, just getting lack of sleep. We know that cortisol levels, there's a whole circadian rhythm and that um, when that's affected, it can affect cortisol levels and that can affect cortisol as a stress hormone that can also affect insulin levels. So uh, we devoted a whole chapter in the PCOS workbook to sleep and helping patients develop good sleep hygiene. Give us the, uh, the high points of what you mean by good sleep hygiene. Good sleep hygiene make, means making sleep a priority, going to bed at the same time each night and trying to wake up around the same time, trying not to do other things in the bed other than sleep, maybe sex too, but um, not doing any work, not watching TV even in your bed, not even reading. So just keep the bed to sleep and, and, and uh, sex. And even just other things to help, like room darkening shades, doing some mindfulness meditation before bed, things like that can really help. And and if you are struggling with insomnia, it's very treatable. And I would recommend working with a mental health professional to help you get to the underlying issues of what's contributing to your insomnia. And if you do have sleep apnea, there's good treatment for that. Typically, it is with a CPAP machine to help you... Um, get enough oxygen in, and they're much better than they used to be. They're much quieter and uh, more comfortable. And people who wear them see a big difference in how they feel during the day. They're not as tired. Their blood pressure comes down. And then it can also bring down their insulin levels as well. So how much sleep does an adult woman need? Everybody is different. And if, if you go on vacation and you go to bed and you sleep until you just wake up and you do that for a couple of days, you'll get a good sense of how many hours a night that you typically need. I, I for one, need nine hours. I need a lot of sleep. But I think the average is seven to eight hours. Yeah. I, I, I've read that the average would be seven to eight, but you're right. I mean, it is individual. And, and you may be a person that needs that needs more um, I think a lot of us kid ourselves by saying that we're we're a person who needs less, but that I think that sometimes is um, it helped me to be told that in fact very few people need less. It's just what you're telling yourself to justify, <laughs> and uh, and in fact that was the case for me. Yeah, it's hard to be disciplined with the sleep, you know, because you want to watch your shows and it's easy to get sucked into Netflix, but. To know that's always going to be there and your sleep is a priority. Yeah. Um, I liked what you said about one of the first steps is prioritizing sleep. Uh, that takes care of a lot of, the, a lot of the issues. All right. So we're talking about lifestyle. Another lifestyle um, that particularly we hear about with any time there is somebody overweight, we usually hear reduce, the, uh, reduce your food and increase your exercise. So what is the relationship in exercise to women with PCOS? So exercise is an important part of treating PCOS and uh, exercise helps to lower insulin levels. It can help lower inflammation. It can help with um, emotional health too, mental health. It's a great way to practice some mindfulness or to help with stress. But when patients ask me, well, what kind of exercise should I do and how much should I exercise? I mean, it's this It's the same as the government guidelines, really, um, that we should be lifting weights at least twice a week. 
And we should get cardiovascular exercise um, at least 30 minutes, 30 to 60 minutes of uh, moderate to vigorous activity um, on the other days. And so is there anything different that a woman with PCOS would do than than what it's typically recommended? Because what you're just saying is what we're all supposed to do. Right. I think doing activities that you enjoy, sometimes what I see patients do is they're trying so hard to lose weight, they're at the gym for hours on end trying to do all this exercise. And if anything, that can make cortisol levels worse and insulin levels worse. It backfires on you. So you don't need to spend hours at the gym and you should be doing activities that you like. Yeah, which yeah can be, you know, games, uh, yeah, um, walking. Uh, it could be any number of things that that uh, that that work with whatever you enjoy doing. Exactly, and we also see that exercise can help with fertility. So if someone is trying to get pregnant, even just taking a walk um, most days a week, ten to fifteen minutes can help with their ovulation. So any other lifestyle factors that you would uh, you'd want women to know about that they should consider if they have polycystic ovarian syndrome? Uh, other things to keep in mind is stress management. So stress for, you know, it's, it's in everyone's lives. It's never going to go away. And, you know, it's particularly, I think, I, I think women with PCOS sometimes have more stress. Number one, they may be trying to get pregnant. Number two, the the misunderstanding and the impact of weight. It just seems like it's a vicious cycle because I think that stress, is there evidence to say that uh, women with PCOS have uh, greater issues with stress than women without? Possibly. We definitely see higher rates of anxiety and depression in patients with PCOS. And really, um, like you mentioned, dealing with the frustrations of getting pregnant, dealing with the frustrations of all the unwanted side effects and um, you know, dermatological aspects of PCOS, like the hair loss and acne and the weight gain. So all that uh, does uh, impact someone's emotional health and puts a lot of stress on them. And I think one of the best ways to deal with stress, because it isn't going to go away, and it's so we have to learn how we manage it, is through mindfulness. Mindfulness practice uh, can really help to bring down cortisol and insulin levels and, and really help you to deal with stress more effectively. And there's some, there's some really strong research that shows that connection. Absolutely. So even something that I encourage my patients to do is just 10 minutes a day, get one of those apps and um, just listen to the app and give yourself that 10 minutes to practice the mindfulness. Yeah, those are mindfulness apps. And I would mention that the, there's the uh, the Ferticalm app uh, that is specific to, and it includes mindfulness techniques specific to women who are struggling with infertility as well. But there are, as you point out, general apps for meditation and mindfulness and things such as that as well. And most of them are free. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Angela Grossi, registered dietitian, nutritionist, and founder of the PCOS Nutrition Center and author of the PCOS Workbook, Your Guide to Complete Physical and Emotional Health. Let me remind everyone that uh, the views expressed are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect creating a family. Our underwriters are our partners. 
Also, keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your infertility professional. Thank you so much for joining us today.